page 1156, 1156 in your pew Bibles, which is where you find Galatians chapter 4, and in particular the verses 8 through 20, 1156, 1157. That's where we find our Scripture reading. And just a note for next Sunday, when we take up the Lord's Supper, we'll return to Romans chapter 12, now verse 13, and there it will, the Lord will encourage us to contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That's the text, Lord willing, for next Sunday, Romans 12, 13. But today, our text is the verses 8, and 11, 8 through 11 rather, of Galatians 4, and we'll read from verse 8 to verse 20. Hear the Word of God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if, you, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I'm again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. As far as the reading of God's holy word, again, the verses 8 to 11 are our text. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I don't know if you are familiar with the four humors, humors now not in the sense of funny, uh, but rather in the sense of substance, ancient Greek, ancient Egypt. Uh, back in the day, a long time ago, it was believed that the humors were what balanced the body, that these four or more, there could be many more, uh, substances when in proper balance would keep you healthy, and that when you were sick, it was because one of the humors was out of balance. You had too much of it. And those four humors were meant to be kept constantly in a state of balance. Now, there is actually, even though we think that the ancients were not that bright, some wisdom, some insight into this truth. After all, when we get sick, it is usually because something is out of balance. We have too many of a particular bacteria and not enough of another. We have too much of a virus and not enough of an immune response. There is a general principle here that isn't bad to consider. But the treatments for this ancient diagnosis of man is probably something we, generally speaking, want to avoid. Because to balance the humors, more often than not, what doctors would do is let out blood. So imagine now that you were feeling sick, maybe with a fever, 
body aches and chills and you go to your doctor and what does he do? He decides to stick an enormous needle or something else, a shunt inside of you in order to drain fluid from you and now you feel even worse and even more miserable. I'm pretty sure that would prevent us, generally speaking, from calling on the doctor. And I think we're all pretty glad that we don't live like that anymore, that we don't live in an environment where medicine is limited to bloodletting, essentially, to removing substances in that sense from our body in order to balance our humors. We're glad that we have things like Advil and Tylenol and antibiotics and all the rest. Who would want to live in those days? Well, essentially, that's the the question that the Apostle Paul now asks of his readers in the uh, church in or the churches in Galatia, because he begins his text and our or his uh, what is our text this morning by saying, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now you've come to know God, rather than to be or rather to be known by God." And how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul says, why are you going backwards? Why are you going back to those things that you know are worthless? Those things that cannot do you any good. Those things that don't heal you at all, that don't bless you at all. Why are you going backwards? It's an important question. It's one that echoes, actually, throughout redemptive history. Remember about the Israelites when they left Egypt and they were delivered by the Lord so wonderfully and gloriously through the Red Sea, which baptism is a picture of, or which was a picture, rather, of baptism. And remember how the Israelites being baptized came into the wilderness and then there was no water, there was no food, and they complained and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They faced hardship, they faced challenge, and the first thing they want to do is go back to the the pots of stew and the leeks of Egypt. And we shake our heads and wonder, what was wrong with these people? Why would they want to go back to enslavement? Why would they want to go back to being under the thumb of Egypt? Why would they want to go back to a time when Pharaoh was killing their baby boys? But there is something about our human nature that finds comfort in the traditional, in the familiar, in the known. Challenges, opposition, stresses, we don't like. What we like is what we know. And better something difficult, better some kind of challenge that we're familiar with than one that we're not. Better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. And there is something about that in all of us, in our human character. We who also have been baptized, now not through the Red Sea, but with the water of baptism, as Aidan was before us this morning, there's something about all of us that, that wants to go back to that kind of religion where we don't have to think, where we don't have to serve, where we don't have to be active spiritually. We just have to tick some boxes. We just have to do what we're told. We just have to follow the routine. That's what the Galatians were wanting to do. That's what we want to do. And that's what Paul is seeking to prevent them from doing. And he does it in the first place by describing for them the reality of their life before coming to Christ. In verse 8 he says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature who are not gods. 
The Galatians, of course, would have been unbelievers, at least from a Christian point of view, but they would have been believers from a Roman point of view. They would have been those who believed in the Roman gods. They would have been those that maybe believed in the Greek gods. In whatever gods that they were raised with, these were people that believed and worshipped gods who at the time they thought were real. Of course they did. Nobody worships a God they don't think is real. And they went about their worshiping, their, their going to church, to temple, to whatever, bringing sacrifices, all with the conviction that by doing these things, they were in some way making the gods happy. But now that Christ had come, now that they'd heard the good news of Jesus Christ, they had come to understand that these gods that they once worshipped were not at all gods. They were by nature not gods at all. They were nothing like God. The gods that the Galatians used to worship were empty, lifeless, and false. And the proof of that was in their inability to do anything. Think of Baal on Mount Carmel with Elijah in 1 Corinthians 18. Think about when he mocked those Baal prophets who were trying to get Baal to light the fire of the sacrifice, saying, well, maybe he's sleeping, maybe he's on the in the bathroom maybe maybe he's on vacation you have to yell louder and what did that event teach except that Baal can do nothing but that the living God can do whatever he pleases for all Elijah had to do was pray and lightning from heaven fell to consume the sacrifice think of Joash the father of Gideon in Judges chapter 6 when Gideon who tore down the Asherah and the Baal sacrifice and or the the altar is 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 accosted by the 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 people of the town we we want to have your son he's done a terrible thing and Joash his father says listen if Baal's got an issue with Gideon then let Baal come and get him let Baal defend himself because he knew Baal couldn't even as we know Indeed, that's why we just sang from Psalm 135, which in verses 15 and following reminds us that to worship false gods makes us to be like false gods. It's a warning to us not to worship the lifeless, lest we become like those who see but, or who have eyes but cannot see, who have ears but cannot hear, who are like them, dead and lifeless. Again, it's not that the Galatians didn't think their gods were gods. But they understood now in the light of Jesus Christ that they were not. And there is in that, for some of us, I think, a very familiar description. Because some of us have come to the faith later in life. We have come after worshiping in other religions. Maybe even other Christian religions. For it is possible for us to be part of the Christian church and still to worship what is not the living God. But now that we've come to hear the good news of the gospel, now that we've come to see Jesus Christ, we've understood that what we used to believe, what we were taught as children, what we were taught in our churches or our temples, is a lie. And the God that was presented to us is no God at all. Or maybe we didn't know the Lord at all. Maybe we lived in the foolishness of our world's spiritual emptiness. Maybe we didn't think that God existed. But we know better now. We know because our eyes have been opened. We know what it was like to be enslaved under that time to those who by nature aren't gods. We believed we were getting somewhere only to discover that we were more than just, or we're nothing more than just hamsters on a wheel spinning away and getting nowhere. 
Yet for many of us in this congregation, this is not at all a familiar description in that we've always known the Lord, and sometimes we we even think that's the problem. We can see the world around us, and we can see that they're having a good time. We can see that they're enjoying life, that things seem to be good for them. And we think that maybe there's something in the world that is better than in the church. And the thing is, is we don't know what it's like to live in that worldly way. We don't know what it's like to live in that empty, spiritual, desert of a wasteland. We don't know from personal experience, because all we know is the Christian lifestyle. And because of that, we can sometimes think that forbidden fruit is all the more tempting. Because let's be honest, sexual immorality, the use of chemicals, drugs, and alcohol to to make ourselves feel better, the materialism that dominates our world, they can seem to us so much better than what we've been given. Too many of us have gone into the world, into the place where the gods of the world, which are by no nature, by nature not gods at all, too many of us have gone there in the expectation that we're going to get some pleasure, some joy, some blessing. We've been immoral in our relationship with our girlfriend or our boyfriend. We have used those substances that the world wants us to use in order to numb and to, to, to drain our thoughts of any, any substance or meaning. We have pursued the things of this world that promise blessing but never deliver. And we have discovered that like the gods of the Galatians, worshiping these things is an empty and pointless exercise because they do not bless. They are lifeless and unable to bless. They are enslaving because they are not gods to provide. And we ought to always and forever remember that as a congregation, as families, as individuals, as young people in particular, who are tempted to pursue the things of this world and to believe the lies of this world. The difference between the living God whom we worship in this place and the gods of our nation, the gods of the emptiness of our spirituality are that the living God acts and accomplishes and does what He promised He would. He promised all the way in the beginning in Genesis 3.15. He promised He would send a Son to save His people. That Savior has already come. And He calls upon us now to see and to embrace that blessedness and not to pursue the emptiness of this world. Contrast that then with the false gods that promise all the time happiness, contentment, wealth, fame, blessed relationships, blessed businesses, but never deliver. Sleep with your boyfriend and he'll love you. Chase money and people will think highly of you. Try this drug, it won't hurt you. And we're fools for believing it. When we follow the gods of our age, we are enslaved to those who are by nature not gods. And why would anyone want to go from freedom to slavery? After all, these people had been free. Paul says, but now that you've come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? 
important thing here is that the apostle describes these Galatians as those who have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Now when Paul says that they've come to know God, he means more than just mental agreement. He means that they have experienced God's blessing. In the Bible, to be known is more than intellectual. It's a whole person. It's the most intimate expression of union and communion that the Bible has. Indeed, we sometimes as little children chuckle over that when we read that Adam knew his wife Eve. And then we laugh and, and, and giggle about what that word know means. But it means know in the most intimate, in the most blessed of ways. So that when we also know God, then it's more than just intellectual assent. It's this personal experience of his blessedness, of his greatness, and of his goodness. It means from the darkness of sin, we experience the brilliance of his light. And from the meaninglessness of false gods, we came to experience the fullness of what God is. When we experience the power of God, we're like people who receive those cochlear implants, like those who are given those glasses who are colorblind and suddenly see color. That is, we are like those people who suddenly realize the world is full of wonderful joys and blessings that we hadn't heard or known before. And the wonder of it is that it's all because of His grace. We know because we are first known. And again, this is not data. That is, it is not that God suddenly takes notice of us. God has always known everything there is to know about us in all of our lives. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But when he knows us in the way that Paul intends in our text, when we are known by God, then he loves us, then he favors us, then he gives himself to us. Indeed, gives himself most fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the God who can know us, for he has given himself in the flesh. He's the God who knows and whose knowing produces a powerful renewal in our lives. There is a powerful difference then for those who know God and are known by Him, a powerful personal experience of God's grace and goodness. And those of us who have come from the emptiness of this world can speak to that, about how suddenly the world begins to make sense and there's a direction to our lives and a meaningfulness to our existence. We rejoice to be known by God. We who have lived long in the faith may not always realize just how blessed we are. We know the blessing of God's favor in our lives. We just don't always realize it. The security, the structure, the hope, the joy, the purpose. All of these things give us our lives. And we know that there is such a thing as truth and a thing as the lie. We know that hard work blesses and that honesty is a virtue, that service is a positive quality. We may think those things are normal, but in the world in which we live, they are very abnormal. All of which is to say that we need only count our blessings to realize how foolish it would be for any of us to turn away from this place of God's goodness and grace. That's what the Apostle wants us to understand. That's why he speaks this way to the Galatians. 
But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world whose slaves you want to be once more? The apostle says to us as church now, notice that he's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to church members, church members who are are being tempted by virtue of the messages they're hearing. Just like we hear messages, we also hear, indeed, many, many more messages, don't we, than the Galatian church could ever hear. The Galatian church didn't have social media, didn't have podcasts, couldn't access leaders and speakers from all over the world, but we can. And when we hear sometimes, whether it's at school, at university, or college, whether it's on the radio or on our social media, Instagram, and all the rest, when we begin to hear all of these messages of the world that say that we don't need the faith, that we don't need the things of the Lord, that we can go on our own, that we don't need, we could be religious without being spiritual or spiritual without being religious, that we can do all sorts of things and be saved, no problem. And we begin to believe that these things are true then we are trading the freedom of Christ for the shackles of enslavement. We are entering into misery and pointlessness and emptiness. And we ought to resist the devil's temptation to trade the gold and the glory of our God for the empty promises of our world. For what a gift is all of ours to be included in so great a blessing as to be known by God. You think of young Aidan here who today has been known by God. God has spoken His name. I know you. You are mine and I am yours. This is what the Lord said to him today. Now can you imagine that Aidan, who's been given the greatest inheritance and blessing his life, could ever receive a gift greater than any material blessing we might bestow upon him. Can you imagine that he would take that gift and throw it away for the emptiness of this world? Sadly, it happens with far too great regularity because we believe that the things of this world are not slavery, but freedom. But we are fools, for they are slavery indeed. Indeed, listen to what Paul says. In the end of our text, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. Paul fears that his Galatians are surrendering already. That they are already giving in and giving up on the gospel for this enslavement that they've been promised by the false teachers. By going back to a religious system that demands but never delivers, that promises but never pays. That's what the days, months, seasons, and years is a reference to. It is a subtle reference to both Jewish religious holidays, like Sabbaths and New Moons and the Year of Jubilee, but also to pagan rituals that identified the gods with days of the week, with seasons of the year. Indeed, we still hold these things. We have Mondays, which are moon days. We have months, which are moon months. We have Sundays. We have Thor days. We have Woden days. These are all days reminding us that we are surrounded by religious symbols. What is different here for the Galatian Christians is they were being told that they had to observe these holy days or else fail to inherit salvation. They were being told that if they didn't worship on the certain day, if they didn't observe certain months, if they didn't recognize certain seasons, then they would not be saved. And it was the requirement that was the issue. 
It wasn't that they observed these things. Of course, you have to observe days, months, and years. You have to even, in some sense, observe observe religious moments in this life. But to say if you don't do those things, you cannot be saved is different. That changes the relationship of the believer to God. And if that's the case, then we are slaves again no longer free, having to obey and never loving the Lord enough to offer our lives in gratitude for His grace. Indeed, we become as those who cannot achieve what we are promised. A demand is made, you must do these things, but the achievement is impossible to accomplish. Just think for a moment, in this respect, in the history of the churches, of those who have been told repeatedly, even as we anticipate celebrating Lord's Supper next Sunday, that they are unworthy to participate in the Supper of our Lord. Now, there are those who are unworthy and must be warned, and the elders of the church are given the task of making sure that those who are unworthy don't come to the table of our Lord. But you know that there are churches, there are cultures, even within the Christian community, that over overwhelmingly place upon their members a a sense of guilt and shame and you are unworthy you may not come to this feast of grace so that when they come to celebrate the Lord's Supper very few people maybe one or two in a congregation of 14 or 1500 souls comes to the table of the Lord they recognize that they are unworthy they cannot achieve what they've been called to achieve And they've been told that the blessing of God's grace is forever out of their reach. Do you not see how this is then an enslavement, not a freedom? That this is a leaving of the faith, not a pursuing of the faith. Because if people are told that they have to be worthy before they can be blessed, then the gospel is no longer the gospel. And salvation is no longer by grace through faith. But it is by our merits and our worth. And indeed, this is how serious Paul sees this problem. He says to the Galatians that he believes he's labored over them in vain, or that he fears that he's labored over them in vain. That is, that his ministry unto salvation will be lost, that is, that they will not be saved. So serious is this matter of their leaving the freedom of grace for the enslavement of ritual that Paul is fearful of their eternity. Now notice, this is not an issue of the falling away of the faith. That is, these are not people denying Jesus Christ. These are not Christians who are saying, we don't believe in Jesus anymore. We don't think He's the Messiah. Indeed, they very much believe that Jesus is the Son of God, incarnate, died on the cross and rose again on the third day. But they also believe that wasn't enough that he needed their help, that he needed them to do something in order to be saved. This is not a falling away from the faith. It's believing that we can experience in the darkness what is only possible in the light, that we can jettison a part of Jesus and still manage to arrive at some post-death blessedness. It is a believing that somehow or another our going through the motions is enough. That our coming to church today 
is enough. Our putting in the offering is enough. Our not using bad language is enough. Indeed, it is our believing that we are Christians because we do good. That we can prove our faith, that we can identify as redeemed because we do more good than evil. It is a believing that by doing, we accomplish. Which is enslavement and not freedom. Going backwards and not forwards. It is like bloodletting as a medical cure-all for every disease you have. People used to believe it, but we know better now. Why would you go back to such foolishness? Now, the Galatian church, to be sure, was in a unique position because these were all brand new Christians. These were people that had come out of the darkness into the light. And they were being led astray by some Jewish leader, some people that believed they knew better than the Lord and His Spirit. And some of us have come to the gospel that way too. And for those of us who have, there is a direct application in this passage to our lives. Don't, don't as you come to the gospel, as you come to the Christian life, as you come to learn what it means to live the Christian life, don't imagine that all of these routines, all of these traditions, all of these cultural practices are what get you saved. Don't fall into the temptation of believing that being a Christian is about living in a particular lifestyle, pleasing to God that earns from Him blessing. That's not why you're called out of darkness into the faith. That's not why you're here to worship the Lord today. You're here to worship the Lord today because He has known you. Because He has called you by name. Because He has lifted you from the pit of your sin. Because you are established for all eternity upon the foundation of His grace. Because you are His and He is yours. Now give your life in thanksgiving to Him. Praise Him. Come to church because you want to. Live for the Lord because you're grateful. Offer your life because it's a blessing, a privilege to do. Don't ask, do I have to do this in order to be saved? Ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Here is a reminder to all of us that it's easy to fall into the temptation of mere superstition or mere custom, rather. We heard that also today in the form for baptism. That we can baptize our children out of mere custom, thinking that just by doing it, we have accomplished all that's necessary. But none of these religious practices in themselves are going to do a thing for us before the face of God in terms of our eternity. The only thing that can save us is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are to give ourselves in gratitude. And for those of us who are born and bred in the faith, We ought to hear this word as well. We who are tempted to leave the safe security and the blessed confines of our homes, of our church, of our community, because we think that the world has something to offer, to go backwards is not like choosing between two equal options. It's like choosing leeches instead of Tylenol, bloodletting instead of antibiotics. I mean, you can do it, but you'd be a fool for doing it. So don't do it. See and count the blessings of God's grace to you. List the things that the Lord has done for you and stand in awe of His grace. 
You've seen the water of baptism today. These are the things that God has said to you, that He will watch over you. He will forgive you. He will work in you. What greater gift has anyone received than this? You hear about the blessing of the Lord's Supper next Sunday, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. What has the world ever given to anyone that can match that little bit of bread and little bit of wine that we receive on the Lord's Supper? Now, don't turn from the things of this life. Don't let your parents, your preachers, your elders, your teachers labor in vain. But count your blessings and see the riches of God's grace in your life and turn neither to the right or to the left, but offer yourself as a living sacrifice of praise to your God. Let's ask the Lord help, Lord's help in doing that. Shall we pray? Merciful God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you for your word and will. We thank you that it warns us against the ways that are so tempting to our hearts. For Lord, we acknowledge it. We accept it. We understand it. Lord, our hearts want to to wander. They're prone to wander. We can feel it. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, not to turn away from the blessings of your grace and goodness for the emptiness of this world. But instead, O Heavenly God and Father, help us to count our blessings, to name them one by one, that we may see just what you have done. In Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our song of response is number 517. We're going to sing the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The stanzas 1, 2, and 3. And then we'll go back to Psalm 135, and we'll sing stanza 5 as our doxology.